Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, on to this month's event podcast. So this is Startup Grind. We get together once a month, typically the second Monday, typically at Rev1, to have a conversation with an entrepreneur or investor or someone important to the startup ecosystem. Rev1's been a great partner. We've been doing this now for three and a half years. Um, other than when there's conflicts or there's a special thing happening like Startup Week, we always do it here at Rev1. Um, Dan Bruno is in the back from Rev1. If you don't know Rev1, if you don't know Dan and you want to talk to those guys about what they do, talk to Dan, uh, hand him a beer, and then it'll probably be a smoother conversation. Other sponsors, Daryl is in the back from King Memory, sponsor, supporter, Alex Brown is in the back from Dickinson Wright, the guy that that looks like an attorney, the only one with a blazer on, and he brought and and it's Nate, right? Nate, I'm so I'm so glad that you dressed down from Alex, so that's good. So Nate's also with Dickinson Wright, uh, but he's all, but he seems somewhat trepidatious about working with Alex. So if you could make him feel better about Alex by the end of the evening, please do that and put in a good word for Alex and Dickinson Wright as he's made this decision to join their firm and work with Alex. Our firm, AWH, Caitlin and Robin, help check people in. We're a digital products firm, so uh, if, you need, if you want to talk about building software, you can talk to us about doing that. Um, Heartland Bank is a sponsor in GBQ, accounting firm, tax, fraud, audit, all those things that an accounting firm does. So if you need that sort of stuff, talk to those guys. We have a couple of people that want to make some announcements. So Kelly, if you would... Make your way up. This is Kelly Cox from Serendipity Labs. Uh, give her a hand. She's going to get up and grab a mic. And yeah. <laughs> Kelly, take it away. Thank you. I feel like I would have had a wine cooler if I'd known I was going to be given a microphone. <laughs> I'm Kelly Cox. I'm with Serendipity Labs. We are 15,000 square feet of co-working, private office, meeting, and event space coming to downtown, actually the Fifth Third Center specifically. Um, we're opening in August in the State Street address, and then, spoiler alert, um, we've got one coming to the short north in the spring, so think where they tore down the UDF. Our building will be there with some rooftop space, so that's cool, too. That's coming next spring. Um, uh, let's see. I've got some business cards. They've got day passes on the back of them, so when we do open mid-August, come check us out. I'm back there. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Neil. I'm uh, Neil Collins. I know many of you. I'm with Innovate New Albany, and I have my own company, Results Marketing Group. Um, I'd like to just mention something new that we're bringing to Columbus. It's called Founder Institute. Uh, anyone ever heard of it before? Any hands? Okay, great. It uh, was started several years ago at Silicon Va in Silicon Valley, and um, that's not the last name I'm going to drop in this announcement here. Um, it was founded by a gentleman named Adeo Resi. That's a pretty good name, right? It sounds cool anyway. But it gets way cooler than that. His roommate at Wharton was Elon Musk. So if you uh, turn up for a Founder Institute event, you never know who might be there. Maybe Elon Musk, right? Um, it's a pre-accelerator program. It'll be launching. Something get this right. Are you, 
Are you, are you selling people the opportunity to meet Elon Musk? Pretty much, yep. Yep, that's pretty much it. Yep. No, it's a pre-accelerator program, 14 weeks. It's going to start in the fall with our first class. Um, and we've got two events coming up if you'd like to learn more about it. One of them is at Rev1 this Thursday night right here. And the next one will be at Innovate New Albany on Thursday the 29th, two weeks later. So I think it'll be fun. We had one last week at Lumos. It was great. So come on out and check it out. Thank you very much. Thanks, Neil. So there you go. Talk to Neil and meet Elon Musk. So uh, I've actually wanted to uh, uh, talk with, with Vic for a long time. Here, I'll give you that. Um, it'll help people here. It's on. Thank you. So th this, is, um, this is Vic Thorne, longtime entrepreneur, investor. Um, so since we had a couple of announcements tonight, typically we, we welcome our guests and, and we give them a rousing round of applause. So um, I'm going to pause now and we're going to do that. So please help me welcome Vic. So Thank you. I've, I've had Vic on, this, on the, the speaker list for a, a while, and then um, they had a company in their portfolio, um, IPO, I don't know, two months ago probably now, and so um, the timing you know, just worked out really well to, to do it. So one of the things that you'll hear about anybody that knows Vic and has met Vic is that he's one of the, he's one of the coolest cats that you'll ever meet and talk to. So... The first thing I want to ask is, tell us the most uncool thing about you. What, what is the thing that people would be surprised to know that is one of your habits or something that you're into that's a little weird and a little freaky? All right, so what's the most uncool thing about the cool cat, Vic Thorne? There's, don't pretend like there isn't anything. Come on. There's got to be something. Um... You know, I guess the, the most uncool thing about me is I uh, have never really gotten into premium cable. So I get asked a lot whether I've watched, like, things on HBO, Showtime, and other stuff, and I haven't. So I pretend that I'm aware of, like, Silicon Valley and the shows and stuff, but I, I've never paid for premium cable. So I don't know if this is on premium cable or not. Um, so if I say Game of Thrones, does that mean anything to you? I've heard of it. Okay. Um, I have a lot of friends that could answer a lot of questions so for you. This is going to be, this, this is now re getting really embarrassing because I also now can't think of any hip, cool um, shows to ask you about. The Deal Maker. The Deal Maker. John's Show. Have you ever watched John's Show on Bounce TV? No. No. Okay. So, but we got it in, John. So it worked. Bring you, you shouting out got, got us to mention it. What was the one where the guy where they're making meth? Breaking Bad. No. Ever watched that? No. Um, <laughs> damn. All right. Well, that that's pretty uncool. That yeah, you've never watched any of those shows. I have, yeah, I have not watched a whole lot. But of you're hip. saving a lot of a lot of money on basic with just basic cable. I, I spend a lot of time with my kids. So that's and good. I watch reality TV with my wife. So I know a lot about um, The Bachelor, Bachelorette, and stuff like that. Do, That's do, when I get most of my work done. So when people get emails between like 8 and 11 p.m., I'm on the couch pretending to listen to reality TV with my phone here and my laptop there. Do you watch any of the Real Housewives series? Uh, I've listened in, yes. Which is your, which is your, which is your favorite? 
New York, Beverly Hills. Mind you, I've never watched the any one where of these, they're all divorced. So I can't, what's that? The one where they're all divorced and half of the people are in jail. That's that's the best one. <laughs> so it's like the title needs to change at some point because like I don't think anybody's actually married anymore. And no one's a housewife anymore because they're no in more jail. Housewives. They all have their own businesses. Their husband, ex-husbands are in jail or with other people, and so that's. That is one of my favorites. Well, now I don't know how to segue out of this conversation, <laughs> um, so I'm just going to do it really un, uh, unelegantly and just say... I'm super uncool. You win. Right. Yeah. No, you, you're, you're still probably the coolest guy that I know, um, just because you have basic cable, right? Is, is, if you knew the things about me that were uncool, then you know, we, could, we could be here till like midnight. We still do have a VHS player that we use once in a while. You still have a VHS player yes, that you use? Absolutely. So what kind of VH te- what like kind of Rocky movies are you still watching on VHS? Stuff that we we bootlegged back in like 1985. Like Cannonball Run? So yeah, things like that. Yeah. 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 So Burt Reynolds back when still my sort of does it paid for you. For HBO, we'd set the thing up, pull the tab and hit record and <laughs> basically recorded everything off of HBO in the 80s. All right. Okay. Let's get to business. Uh, let's talk about an IPO <laughs> because you know most of us have not been through one. So let's sort of start at the beginning of that. How and why are you guys in China looking at companies and funding companies? And, and let's talk about first how you guys end up over there, and then we'll sort of dig into the, the okay. IPO around China Rapid Finance. Yeah, so my, uh, my brother Chris and I, uh, he's six years older. We started our first company um, when I was about just about three years out of college back in 99 and it was a supply chain software business process automation for the food service industry we ended up having a, a pretty good amount of success exited that business to private equity and we had companies like McDonald's and Cisco the food distributor and Cargill and Tyson Kraft Nestle Heinz groups like that invest so when we sold the business we said what's the next pain point in the supply chain for food service. And there were a few, but it was, it was right around 2007, 2006, 2007, um, when we officially got, got our full liquidation event out of that. And the economy, the food industry is one of the earliest predictors of when the economy is about to, uh, on the horizon, gonna start uh, moving in the wrong direction. So they said, um, you don't want to be investing and doing a whole lot here. Uh, you should probably be looking at China. That Sourcing things, sourcing supplies and stuff from China is a big challenge for us. So that's what initially took us to China. Sarah Lee actually set us up with one of their vendors, and we went way down the path to, to uh, make an acquisition of this uh, supplier, producer and supplier of sodium erythorbit, which is a derivative like an iso vitamin c so it's a preservative if you've ever had oscar meyer bologna there's a reason it all looks the same every time every slice has the same color you never see any variety but if you go to the you know the local farmer's market <laughs> there's a little more variety in in what meat looks like sodium erythrobit's a preservative and it keeps the color and all that stuff for those highly processed meats uh, so for, for better or worse before i knew too much about what processed meat uh, is you know how the sausage is truly made. Um, we went in, we went out there and we uh, were about to acquire that company. And then realized there's property and a lot of nuances. But through that process, we made great uh, relationships and friendships. 
with investors and people entrenched in the government there. And when we backed away from that investment, uh, we had enough trusted relationships to guide us into other opportunities. And that's when we, we were guided to uh, a company called China Risk Finance at the time. And China Risk Finance was a Western incorporated company. So it was actually a Delaware LLC with all of its operations in China. It was much cleaner, much easier kind of an investment opportunity. And uh, it had Western investors at the very startup stage. And the founder had spent a lot of time at Sears Credit. He built the Sears Credit system and, and was their head of analytics as a PhD from the University of Maryland. So uh, he's someone that we didn't need a translator to speak to. But he had a brilliant idea, uh, which was become entrenched with the state-owned banks and with China Mobile, China Telecom, and other, other groups, um, and build basically like the, the beginning stages of a credit rating agency in the mainland of China, which didn't exist before. So he was asked to come back to China and help them build their version of the IRS. And then he went and started this company based on what he had learned there to be able to provide a solution so that it could actually be implemented. So our so this, so this dude started their version of the IRS? Yes. He Is he was, the most hated person in China now? <laughs> well, they've always taxed people, but, but uh, um, his, his, their, their uh, infrastructure is what created a tremendous amount of wealth in China in the, in the, in the banking systems. So it's more about empowering the growth of the urbanization of China and creating an infrastructure so that the government would know who's where and help actually create a base so that they could have uh, institutions there like education and, and uh, support systems. Um, so they, they didn't have a very good way before that of identifying who was where and who was going where and, and what they were doing. A lot of people don't have bank accounts, so it's hard to hard to figure all all of that out. So when we when we were introduced, we made the investment. Uh, it was we led the Series B investment in 2007, I think, and and uh, have been very involved with the company since. But it was really it was a good fit. My brother uh, was the the a leader in the financial institutions group at McKinsey. And before we started our first business, and I was working at Morgan Stanley, so we both had an understanding a little bit about um, financial services and, uh, you know, spending a couple of years in an entrepreneurial environment and then uh, going out and, and uh, spending a couple of years in China. I think we were naive enough to make the jump and make the investment and take the risk, and, and I think we were we were clever enough to see that this was an opportunistic investment and it wasn't going to be a one of many because uh, we, we've always believed in things that have some s sort of underlying value where each step of the process to build a business or build an idea, there's sort of one click where you reduce risk and at the same time you're increasing value. If you're reducing risk and reducing value, that doesn't go well. If you're Increasing value and increasing risk, that doesn't go well. But this company had a strategy, and they were executing even at the very earliest stages. So it was, it was a really unique opportunity for us to make that investment. So it was our biggest investment and our first investment. So we pretty much took the money we made when we sold our company and held back enough to pay off our debt and get off the couches we were living on 
and then we threw the rest into China. How did the decision to go down to ultimately go public, and, and what were the other options, or was the plan and was there awareness from the beginning that the company would ultimately go public? Uh, there, you know, there's always a hope when you get involved in an investment like that that you you have a liquidity event. An IPO is sort of a uh, something that's that you hang up on a shelf, but it doesn't it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you made more money than someone that sold their business to a private company. Uh, you know, our the, our first company we sold privately and it was had a good value, and then the people that bought it from us sold it for over half a billion dollars cash in a very unpublicized transaction. So, you know, the, the IPO is a great story. It's a great story. It gives you an opportunity to maybe have a, a higher premium on the value of the business. For us, it was a really good way to raise the amount of money we needed to raise. It created a legitimacy for the company. So for a Chinese company with all of its operations in China to pass the due diligence litmus test for the New York Stock Exchange listing and have Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, and Jefferies lead the IPO and be the underwriters and Citibank be the bank that was the, the trustee or the, the, uh, um, the, whoever, the treasury, uh, you know, those are things that create a lot of legitimacy. So that attracts the right kind of investors that you want into the business during the roadshow. So, the, you know, you have a, a two or three week roadshow, some is sort of teeing up the, the blast right before the IPO, but leading up to the IPO, you're, you're traveling to seven or eight cities around the world, and the people that are denied entrance into the, the meeting with institutional investors are people that I wish I had been standing outside the door with my business card, you know, and said, I, those are guys I want to meet too. Um, so it really created this, this, this uh, amount of heat and, and legitimacy that uh, for a company that's young and it's not uh, in the U.S., the operations aren't here. It's not doing uh, billions and billions of dollars of revenue. Um, it really established a name for the company and, and got it out there. But most importantly, we needed to raise the money to execute on the company's vision, which we believe will enable it to grow. What does the company do? Uh, so the company today uses the same general algorithms to assess creditworthiness for consumers, but they've created a wealth management system and a micro-lending platform. So it's essentially a data company. It's a data analytics AI company uh, that, get, that can identify people through behavior and things other than just their financial movement about whether or not they're credit worthy. And it has a low and growth strategy. So essentially they have tens of thousands of lenders that are higher net worth folks that lend 10000 to $100 million in increments starting at 50 or or $100. So someone could be online and have never borrowed before in their life except for maybe a neighbor or something and be looking on uh, one of the online shopping sites and it could be near maybe the Chinese New Year or somebody's birthday, and you know they're thinking about buying it, and something pops up that they're pre-approved, and click here, and you can buy this. So it's it's sort of creating a virtual, you know, we we think about infrastructure. China has done a lot to leapfrog us in infrastructure because they had nothing to start with in certain areas, so they could take the most advanced and just go straight into it whereas we still have to deal with you know, wires over the road on, on wooden poles. 
So in this sense, this, uh, this enables you to be a virtual credit company the, and, and skip the, the, you know, going through the process of somebody getting a credit card from a bank. And we're doing that kind of thing here, but in China that, that's sort of a lot of people's first entree into getting credit. So you get a $50 or so loan, unsecured, you pay it back, you now are starting to build your credit profile. And the target market, uh, there's over 500, people in Chi- 500 million people in China that are called EMAs, which are Emerging Market Mobile Active. So Emerging Middle Class Mobile Active, EMAs. And those are people that have, do not have credit history, don't have any borrowings from a bank, don't have a mortgage, things like that, that are mobile active. So you can start to assess the, the correlations be- between their behavior their social profiles, what, what times they're online, what they're searching for, what games they're playing and such, and target them in, a, in an environment that's comfortable for them. So it's, it's sort of changing the way that you market to the emerging middle class in China. And with a 500 million person target market, you know, they've lent out to about 2 million so far and have a default rate that's been published that is comparable to Amex. So it's very, very solid, very good, uh, very good data analytics. So I say it's an analytics company first that happens to be in this particular lending market. So the, 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 the day that you rang the opening bell, were you, just, were you just like, man, we're the shit, right? I mean, this is... I've, I've, were, were, you, were you just like, yeah, I might have basic cable, but I just am part of a company that IPO'd, so take that. Yeah. Um, well, it was, it was interesting because uh, on, on the Thursday where – so the, the day that the company had its first trade, there were five IPOs that day, and Cloudera was one. So we were not the, the – uh, You weren't the darling of the ball necessarily? <laughs> no, and it's like, you know, we've gone through a few years of just like nothing – and then on that day was was you know like the the resurrection of the IPO market, so it was cool in that sense. Um, you have uh, Cloudera, Carvana, and a few others that are uh, more local, well known. It was surreal though the the week leading up to it. You know, not having been in an IPO before on that on this side of it. Um, it was really interesting to see the anxiety and the uncertainty. I mean it. It's not done until it's done. You see companies pull their IPO the day before and stuff if markets change or something happens uh, that, that they're not prepared for. And there was a constant negotiation of what the opening price was going to be, who the investors were going to be that were accepted to purchase the, IP, the initial offering. So I learned a ton. So it was really exciting to, to be a part of that. But it was also, you know, it was, it was surreal to think that the company had achieved its goals to that point and, and had an opportunity to really do something big. I think one of the interesting things was that, that I took away from that evening when there was a celebration and we had a big party and all this stuff is uh, one, of the, one, of the, uh, one of our co-investors um, got up and he, he, I think it was a Churchill quote that he threw out. He said, it's not the beginning, it's not the end, it's the end of the beginning. And, you know, because we, we didn't get any money out of it. It's a public company, but we can't touch it and talk too much about it for six months. So it could tank or it could go up ten times or it could sit where it is. And the stock price is all dependent on sentiment. 
and performance, and, and it could be more heavily weighted on one or the other, or it could be driven by politics or, or things that are complete externality, externalities that are out of our control. So, so was your co- when your co-investor started quitting Churchill, was he just hammered at this point? Had he uh, been yeah. drinking champagne for like four hours? Yeah, for two, for two or three days. Two or probably. three days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but he's a professional drinker, so he was okay. <laughs> so he was okay. <laughs> well, he's obviously a very astute one if he's, if he's quoting Churchill, because if I drink too much, I start quoting like Mike Tyson and people like that. <laughs> uh, not nearly the same level I generally as go towards Beavis. I did watch that back in the Okay. Day. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So you did watch TV. It was just 20 years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. MTV is huge. Okay. Awesome. So MTV Jams was my favorite, absolutely. MTV Jams? Yeah. I don't right, know what so that... Sh- question. I don't know what that show was <laughs> uh, before my time. Not really, but it sounds good to say. Um, so uh, let's go back to the, the company. So how did, did you and your brother... Your brother's at McKinsey. You're at Morgan Stanley. Did you guys always know you were going to do a business together? And did you always know what space the business was going to be in how did you get into the food the food not easy for me to say apparently food distribution business um so my brother like i said is six years older he's an overachiever type a harvard undergrad harvard jd harvard mba got his pick of where he got to work i was holy shit (laughs) i was i was in the undergraduate program i was pre-med biological anthropology uh, spent a summer in Kenya on an archaeology dig, and, and I ran a student grill. With money I made, I bought DJ equipment and was a lifeguard and, and played a little bit of football when I felt like it, um, which means not a lot. Frankly, um, you sound cooler than your brother, though. I totally am much okay. cooler than he is. And he'll be on a private island. I'll go visit, and he can <laughs> deal with all the rats that swim from wherever. But anyway, uh, so I was... I was pre-med. I was pretty set on going to medical school. And he was like, do you realize what you're doing when you're here? Like, you're doing all this stuff. Do you really want to, like, go bury your head in books for four more years and keep doing all this stuff? And then I had two other siblings that were going through their residencies that had gone down that path. And they both looked like shit every time I saw them um, and were exhausted. And they were like, you won't survive this. You'll... (laughs) Get out of this thing. We've got so Good. little confidence yeah. in your ability to actually bring <laughs> this to conclusion that we're going to tell you not to do it. Exactly. So, I, you know, I, was, I've, I think I've always kind of had an entrepreneurial spirit, and I, I'm too curious to get too bogged down into things. So I, I like to just learn things and, and try new things and solve problems. So we got into the food industry because, uh, um, well, a few things. One is the dot-com boom and bust was fully in cycle in the mid to late 90s, right? And I, my, my brother was at the top of his class in the business school. And the guy that was in the bottom of his class was in his section, and he kind of helped him through. And that guy didn't have a job. He was the only guy in HBS that didn't have a job when they graduated in 94. So that guy wrote cases, because Harvard Business School is not going to let somebody not have a job. What a loser. So they had this guy writing cases, and he was writing cases for a company called America Online. And then he created a consulting firm and started working with America Online. America Online acquired his company for stock and then had some IPO and stock maneuvers, and he ended up cashing out about $40 million. So the guy that was in the bottom of the class comes to their reunion and says, you know, 
I'm living in Hawaii for the next six months while my house in Scarsdale is being, we're cutting this one down. We built, got two lots and we're building a new one. And my brother's like, what the heck is this? <laughs> Literally. That's what happened. Um, so he and I got together because I had my undergrad reunion. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm having fun. And he's like, yeah, I'm having fun. But it's like, if we're going to do something, let's do it. And so we realized there was, a, there was an interesting and unique opportunity. There were a lot of industries that were creating these consortia, right? It was the responsibility of the biggest companies and the biggest industries to come together and share resources and, and leverage new technologies to solve their industry's biggest problems. Problem is, these were loaned executives that didn't miss a paycheck. It was a fun project. They'd get a floor in the Sears Tower in the food industry, for instance, this company, Transora. Amazing. They raised $270 million, and, and they turned into a nonprofit. They flicked us out of their office like we were really annoying to them, and we never had to pay for their product that they ended up, the one thing they built. And we raised about... Uh, 120th the amount that they did and had just a few partners and actually executed. So our point of view is if you have people that have no idea what's going on in the industry, don't have any relationships, then we can actually learn it without any hair, without any biases, if we have the right partners around us. So that was our philosophy. And somehow people bought into a 25-year-old kid with a bit of an afro with no experience except I ran a student grill in college say, we want to spend a couple of years just learning your industry, and if you agree to work with us and bring in some of your trusted trading partners, maybe we can actually implement some new technologies to solve your supply chain problems. And what do you have to risk? You can go to I2 right now and spend $50 million as an industry, and they'll take what they have and make it look like it fits your industry. But maybe we can figure out a way to actually customize something. And that's what we ended up doing, and we, we built really good relationships. And I think I've always done better with family businesses and people that are down to earth in, in, in industries like the food supply chain. So how long did you guys run that company uh, before, you, before you sold it? Uh, we ran it for five, four years. Four wow. Years. And we, uh, so I went from fundraising to product management to business development to sales. I was the first and only salesperson when we actually had a product. The first product was an order-to-cash automation system. Some people call it EDI, but if you can't afford EDI in 19 or in 2000, then it's order-to-cash. Then they bought your product? Yeah. So Cisco could use their electronic data interchange system, and it would look like their $5 million Buffalo, Buffalo Blue Cheeseburger supplier out of Canada is also on that same sophisticated EDI system but they're over there logged in. And it had all kinds of reporting and, and SAS and all those things before the buzzwords came in. But uh, everything was value-based, so we said, what creates the most value? What's the, what's the process? What's the, what's the, uh, what are the true pain points we're trying to solve? And are, how much are people willing to pay to solve them? Let's build a business that at some point we can actually be self-sustaining and not rely on investors to keep us afloat. And let's not figure it out after we build it. Let's have these guys actually build it with us. So we have embedded customers before we release the product. Because I think one of the challenges we have in startups, one of the beautiful things like startup weekends and stuff is we have a lot of great ideas and a lot of people coming. But validation is a pretty important thing. 
And sometimes people don't understand, the consumer doesn't know what they don't know, and that's awesome. But I think sometimes we buy in too much to that, and it's an excuse to not do our own validation and due diligence, uh, especially in B2B. You know, uh, there, it's pretty easy to go to someone and say, Would you ever buy this? Like, no, but I'd use it. Well, those are two different things. And that doesn't mean that one is better than the other, but it's good to know. Because hearing that's cool can have multiple meanings. Well, and ultimately, it, it, it's the difference between building a business and having a hobby, right? If cash isn't going to change hands at some point, you don't really have something that, that's going to be commercially viable. So people find lots of things interesting that they use, but at what level would they pay for it and actually become a customer? And so some, some commerce can actually happen as part of it. Yeah, so it made it really easy for us to scale this business. We launched... Um, in November of 2001, right after 9-11, and I had to wait for the airports to come back online. And I went to our initial 10 investors who were all food service distributors. And I said, you know, we're, this is what we're doing. We agreed. We've built this. This is for you. And now is the time where you need to invest in efficiencies and things. Um, and it was, it was amazing because, you know, they knew the value proposition because we did it together. It was their data and their validation that said, here is what we're willing to pay. So then when we went outside the, the group past those first 10, they were like, how'd you come up with this pricing? We could actually lay it out and say, this, is, this was driven by your peers in the industry. This isn't a pricing mechanism that's, that's just made up pie in the sky. There's a clear value proposition, ROI, and here's the whole process to get there. How did you get 10 distributors that presumably you know, all don't see the world the same way, and they're all trying to grow and run their own businesses. How did you get 10 to all sort of coalesce around this and not only come in as, as, as investors, but really be your first customers? Uh, was that an easy process to get them on board? How long did that take? Because of that, that seems like sort of the holy grail for most startups, right? To have early customers that are also investors that give you a big enough swath that you can, you're can you making really significant validations around the value of the solution in the market because it's not just one or two or three. In this case, it's 10. Yeah, it's, I think that's a critical point. Um, so you start out with relationships that you have directly. So our first relationships were locally. We knew people from Wendy's and, and Bob Evans. So one of our first um, supporters was the distributor for Bob Evans, the Mattingly Foods, the Hess family, out of Zanesville. And as we started to build relationships with people that we knew and they started to bring in their, their network, then we started looking at who's on the board of the, you know, like there was a group called Efficient Food Service Response that was a self-selection of leaders in the industry that said, we want to start looking at how we can implement new technologies and stuff. So we started looking at the industry associations, the boards, who are the power players, and try to find those that are the most collaborative and open to talking to us, and avoid those that are the most selfish and people that will pretend to be friends and then try to, try to take over or undermine. So the food industry, the food service industry, very family-oriented, many multi-generation families in the industry. So you know, it took a year to kind of form the right group, and we had an initial group of 12, and in the second year, while we were still forming everything uh, and getting their trust, one of them was acquired, 
uh, midstream, and then the other, which was the biggest, Alliant Food Service, the head, the president of Alliant Foods, the president of their division that was with us got up and he said, I hope you guys do this. You have to do this. But next week, there, you'll understand why we're not writing our check into this. And it was because U.S. Food bought them mm. that week. But we had some really... It, it spent a lot of time building the right relationships, creating the right web, and having a, a diversity in size and geographic location, which they helped kind of form with us. So it was very collaborative. So y- you get to see a lot of, of companies and a lot of entrepreneurs. What do, what do you see people mostly getting right and mostly getting wrong? Are, are there any sort of common threads that you see that when they're getting it mostly right, what, what are they hitting on? And when they mostly are getting it wrong, what mistakes are they, are they typically making? Well, I, I love being in this environment because entrepreneurs have high energy and they're really thoughtful and they really have um, ideas that most people probably see, feel are outlandish. Um, and those are things where I'm like, let's talk some more. I really want to figure out where you're coming from or understand why, how that makes sense, you know? Um, I think there's a, there's a great level of creativity in the entrepreneurial community around here. What I really think, though, is, is uh, the real strength I see in this region is, you know, we have, a, we have sort of a seven dwarves mentality where we can we have we have the ability to work together in this community and we're not afraid to carry the load and do the work and make things that are unbelievably more complex than people understand silicon valley as a generalization but in my opinion is really amazing at doing really flashy cool stuff they were built on silicon really heavy duty infrastructure really high tech you know a lot of engineering and they, you know, you still have the Googles and the, and the analytics and stuff, but the, you, we see the flash that people want to get into, the heavily VC-backed stuff that's very flashy. But what's the meat behind it? And one of the strengths we have in the Midwest is we, we're not afraid to, make the, to build the back end of stuff that can scale, can, that's really hard to replicate. And so the opportunity for us is to figure out how to combine those two, how to build that connection point because, you know, there's this thing where we don't, we're having a hard time figuring out when you have something that really is amazing, blows away Facebook or, you know, people look at it, oh, my God, but we can't get the first 10,000 users, but then you have some nonsense out in Silicon Valley that gets 10 million users in the first week. Well, there's a game to it. And when you have all of the angel groups and all the VCs out in an area that are collaborating and they all have friends that are in Yahoo and Twitter and all these of course you're going to get 10 million users because they all help each other out. So we need to figure out how to get into that cycle for this flashy stuff. But don't be afraid of building the meat and potatoes because at some point the meat and potatoes always make money. The flashy stuff comes and goes. One, one, in, a, one in a billion become a Facebook or a Google or something like that. But uh, we, have, we have an amazing amount of talent here. So... I think one of the, if there is something that we lack, it's just really the connectivity to figure out how to scale things up and how to connect to the coast. And I think that's, the, the, we're, we have people that are doing that, and you see what they're doing, and it's remarkable. When they do figure out how to connect the dots, 
it's amazing what they can do. So we need to kind of get out of our bubble and put the light a little farther up, like so people outside of the outer belt or outside of the state borders can see what we're doing and, and have people that go back and forth into those. And I, I've never been offended when a, when a local student graduates and gets picked up by Microsoft or Google or somewhere and goes out west or somewhere else. Because I know they'll be back, and even if they're not back, they'll, they're, they're, their heart is always going to keep them tied here. So if we can keep those lines in the water, those are huge opportunities for us. Uh, if you've got a question for Vic, raise your hand, and um, Darren will get you a mic. Darren's back there. Mark, we'll start with Mark up here. I have two questions. You can answer either one. The first one I saw on your website, you've got offices in a number of cities now. And I'm curious how that happened, how that worked. And the first question, and the other question is, it sounds like your initial sales cycle was almost two years before you had any revenue. Uh, how did you survive that period? So those are my two questions. Um, in 1999 and 2000, credit card companies were very liberal. So <laughs> uh, I had a little bit. I had a little bit of savings, and I had a retirement, and liquidated everything I had, and maxed out every credit card, and and uh, lived on, when I moved to Chicago, I was on a buddy's couch for about six months before, uh, before I got the company to, to uh, pay for a little relocation package to get me into an apartment. So I uh, had friends and family investment that got us going. Neither my brother nor I paid ourselves until we were completely broke and we had a uh, business. Um, and, and so, and we were How able we to raise real money. How do we get more people to understand that existence um, is is real and that they, they need to be willing to pay a price ultimately right to, to start something and, and build something um, It seems now that n nobody starting a company now believes th that you had to sleep on a buddy's couch for six months when you were starting up. Right, they just you know we we sort of forget about, and I guess it's human nature, right? That we just think that you guys snapped your fingers and it worked, right? And you made it work, and then you sold, and you know, and then you became filthy rich. How do we get more people to understand that the 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 grind is real? Uh, the grind is definitely real, um, and it you know it's it's situational too. I mean, it's a lot harder to do that or to even imagine doing that now. At, yeah, I'll be 43 on Wednesday, and I have two kids and and a wife, and and you know I I don't have much of a lifestyle, but she does, and the kids do. So you have to maintain that. It's a different world, but you know when you're young and you don't need to have that, and you don't have a lot of that stuff going on, that it's thrilling. I there wasn't a day where I was worried. I loved it. I mean, that was the most exciting thing. So were you just too ignorant to be worried? Totally, totally. I mean, you, I knew that I could go back and get a job if I needed to. And I think that's the thing that anybody that wants to jump out, I mean, we have different mechanisms now where you have incubators, accelerators, you have people willing to fund things while you keep your job. You know, I think, I think the grind is, you know, well, a grind there's, there's different, different elements of risk, and the grind is really 
you know, based on an individual's situation, being willing to take the risk to take your idea, take your vision, let it be chopped up and hacked, be completely different, but be successful, that's the grind. And I, I think that's more of a grind than, than risking everything. I think what we, what we have a trouble with sometimes is falling in love with our baby because it just sounds too good and our friends and family tell us how awesome we are and how great our idea is. And we, get, we don't listen to the customer. We don't listen to the guy with a check. He says, I'll pay for this. You're an octagon. If you turn into a hexagon, I've got a check for that. We need to figure that piece out. When we do that, we've got a really good situation. So I think the grind is being able to be told you're, 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 you don't know what you're doing by enough people to find the one market or the one customer that represents the masses that says you're onto something. You know, those are the elements of the grind that I, I loved and I was willing to risk it all because I, I mean, I, I was a bar back at Victory's the summer after I graduated. I can scoop up poop. I don't care what I need to do. I was going to go out and go after this thing. And if I lost it all, I was, I wasn't going to fade away. You could always go back to Victory's. Exactly. I was still in my 20s and good looking. I could have worked at Victory's then. <laughs> I'm not anymore. Uh, thanks for talking about the grind. Can you also talk about some of the qualities you've noticed within successful entrepreneurs within your portfolio or that you've met personally? Uh, the qualities, personal qualities, business style. Okay. I, I think the biggest, the best quality I see in most, the most successful people and the quality that I look for are people that work well with others and are amazing leaders. I love working with leaders. And they're not leaders because they're standing out in front of a group. They're leaders because they work hard, they play hard, they're focused on what they're doing, they're constantly improving, they're, they're delegating when it needs to be delegating, they don't have ownership of their, you know, of their domain, and they, they want to, they're in the rise all tides kind of mentality. And I've, some of the greatest leaders I've met have never had a title that, or were in charge of a something. They're people that just dominated what they did and just had an incredible impact. And you'd never know their name, but they're, I mean, ext extremely proud of what they do, and you want them to be with you at every venture. So uh, we have a, a network of folks that no one will ever know who they are, and, and they're happy with that. And But I don't want to jump into things. I use them for due diligence, and if they're not with me, then we don't move forward. So I, I think just... There's a leadership style that people have where there's a humility but a real drive for, for excellent like learning and it's just uh, that innate ability to not have to be the leader but to, to lead. Realize it's pretty open-ended, but what is your like or dislike or general opinion of the word entrepreneur? Um, I, I like entrepreneur because it it if someone labels themselves an entrepreneur i think they immediately put themselves in a sense where they're sticking their neck out to try to do something to change something for the better um, at least that's my hope but usually entrepreneurs that if they if they're labeled an entrepreneur somebody trying to improve something and, th and that could be inside of a company it could be in a, any environment 
Uh, what I dislike about the word is it sort of the assumption is that an entrepreneur is someone. There, there's a difference between an inventor and an entrepreneur. Does anybody know what that is? So Ohio State has a massive number of inventors, a massive number of inventions. They have a few entrepreneurs, very few. An entrepreneur oftentimes is an inventor or a person with an idea that gets funded or their product creates value for someone else. And that, that's a very big distinction. I think a lot of people think that entrepreneurs are inventors, and they're not. They might be, but it's, it's, it's not the same thing. Entrepreneurs are people that go out and they create value, and they may not invent a darn thing. They may just make something better or create a new market, but it's not really an invention. Hi, uh, Ben Duvall. Thanks for coming out. And the question I'd like to ask you is, is there anything specific that you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of your journey into entrepreneurship? <laughs> I, I wish I knew what a cap table was when I was 24 years old. And I was so fascinated by the fact that this venture group called EMAC Digital, that was a partnership between McDonald's, KKR, and Axel Partners. I mean, holy crow. It was awesome to have them invest before we had revenue. And it was awesome to be in their offices and see what these guys have been investing in and were investing in. It was pre-LinkedIn, so we were one of actually their, their big wins when they did sell us. But, in fact, for that group, EMAC Digital, we were their biggest, their biggest win. I'm still waiting for the invitation to get on the yacht of the partner that led that deal because I, I didn't make enough to get a yacht, but his carried interest was enough. So it's interesting. Venture capital funds are extremely good at identifying the win, what's going to make their fund. And they're really, really good at telling you how awesome you are and how much you're going to do when you get that next $10 million investment. And you don't realize how much they're buying of the cap table. And I don't read page 182 of a shareholder agreement. As soon as they get control of the company and they know it's going to be a $500 million company, watch out. They do not care about the entrepreneur. They care about their investors. And that's part of the reason when I moved back here seven years ago, I spent a lot of time with entrepreneurs, spent a lot of time here and with the Ohio Tech Angel Funds to try to change the conversation from don't, you know, there are certain things to worry about and other things not to. Think about the long term, how much you really need to be successful to raise money in this. But if I had known then what I know now, I may have different, I don't know, I don't know if my life would be different, but I'd have probably a couple more zeros in the bank account. Well, your cap, your cap table with the food distribution business, having those 10 food distributors as investors, that must have been a pretty interesting cap table. Yeah, it was. It was the, those 10 plus the McDonald's, XL, KKR, and then so we ended up have, enabling companies like Hormel and, and Kraft and Nestle and manufacturers to invest and the minimum chip was a million dollars so we ended up having I think 80 something investors at the end of the day Wow! and um, and it was it was fascinating and fun but you know my my percentage stake went down every time and then the VCs came in and said oh my god these kids have no idea what they've built I, I can just hear them right now what they were saying because I had no fear. I was on an airplane constantly. I'd 
was just going and closing business and having fun. That's not that's not a bad that's not a bad gig. It's long, worth it. Sorry. Long, yeah, good. Yeah, long from Flashstars. I actually drove from Cleveland. Hi, Columbus folks. Um, come so on, Cavs. <laughs> yeah, come on, Cavs. Get it together. <laughs> you, have, okay, so you, you have to carry the burden now of the Cavs winning the championship. Oh. When is tip-off? Tip is tip-off right now? Oh, my God. Two minutes to tip-off? Oh, two hours. Yeah, okay. two hours. All right, yep. so we can, we can talk. Yeah, finger, finger, <laughs> fingers crossed. You won't be able to. Well, it, no, it'll be on ABC, so it'll be, you'll yeah, be able to on, watch it. It's okay. on standard TV, yeah. <laughs> So um, I really appreciate that you compared Silicon Valley and here and what's the value of Midwest startups and also mentioned about the connectivity. How do you see us um, building more of an Ohio brand and then how can we increase the connectivity and what are some of the barriers for us um, to increase that connectivity? Well, I'd say that there's a barrier that we've been chipping at for a while now, at least since I came back there, we're starting to chip at it. It seems like it gets better and better, and it's, it's groups like what are going on here. Interconnectivity here is not obvious. We've had to manufacture it. It's getting better and better and better. It's unbelievable how different it is now with things like Startup Grind than it was six, seven years ago when I moved back. And 20 years ago when we wanted to start our business, and it's like we had one dinner with four people, and that was the Business Technology Council, and there was no funding, and it was like, good luck, guys. You know, like, well, thanks. <laughs> That's awesome. We're moving to Chicago. <laughs> what we have here that we should never underscore is one thing is we have 17 Fortune 1000 companies headquartered in Columbus, 25 Fortune 500 companies in Ohio. Good Lord. We've got to leverage that, and they've got to leverage us. And we continue that dogfight of showing where the value is for both to work with each other more openly to try to generate these opportunities. People don't realize, what people on, in Silicon Valley, when they come and visit here, the venture funds, when I was working with Columbus Partnership in 2020, I would share with them that story. Look at what the concentration we have of these companies wouldn't your portfolio companies want them as their customers? I'm like, all the Victoria's Secret is headquartered in Columbus? What the heck are you talking about? So, you know, and these insurance companies, all this stuff. So I think one thing that we need to be more deliberate about, and I think we are, we continue to improve, is that connectivity. I, I just had... A conversation earlier today with folks at AEP, they're doing amazing things. They're, I mean, a utility company, if a utility company starts to get innovative, out of Columbus, Ohio, we're changing the world from within. I mean, that's, that's moving a mountain uphill, like to, above the next, it's crazy. So uh, I think that's, there, there's an asset that Ohio has that we can leverage our entrenched resources better. In terms of storytelling, I think we just have to have less, less fear. We're, we're global. You, you, we, people know Ohio better in Hefei, China, than they do in Omaha, which is crazy to me. You know, We just need to, we need to be a little bit puff, puff, puffed up and a little bit more confident when we stretch out of the, the loop you know, and, and just say this is what we're doing and not be afraid of failure. 
But I think we're doing all the right things. It's amazing what we're doing here. Yeah, and I would say that there are some things in the works that I think um, will be pretty important and massive moving forward. Um, Venture Ohio is working on a fund of funds for the state that Silicon Valley Bank is is involved in. Uh, I'm, you know, I probably said too much. That's awesome. Because it's, it's, it's not a done deal, but they're working on it and they're talking and they're trying to pull something together. Uh, the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center, representatives from, from, the, from that entity were here a couple months ago and we're, we're building a bridge between that organization and Columbus and probably ultimately more broadly Ohio. So I think there are a lot of things in the works. Many of them are still in infant stages because um, I think we've just sort of gotten over our complex, our infer- inferiority complex. So I think that things are, are beginning to happen now because, frankly, I think Silicon Valley and New York and Boston and other places have been ready for it. I don't think we were ready. I don't think we were at the point where we felt like we could go in and have a peer-to-peer conversation and say, we're going to bring as much value to you guys as you're going to bring to us. And I think it's just beginning to happen. One of our biggest drawbacks is our greatest strength, too, in this community. We have 17 Fortune 1000 companies headquartered here in like nine different industries. They're all market leaders. They're all very stable. We have survived without a whole lot of pain, several economic downturns, and we've thrived in the upturns. And without that pain, the creatives keep their jobs, and that's a problem. So we're like in the second or third generation of entrepreneurship here. Silicon Valley is in its eighth or ninth, and without Silicon Valley being at what it is, it would be a desert. So it's very interesting. Yeah, we, no, we suffer from, you can invest in a high-rise that's popping up on, in the short north, and you're going to make money. Right. So the high net worth local investors, are, they, they have trouble envisioning taking a lot of risk. I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the pain quotient because I've said this for, for years um, that I think Detroit actually has an advantage right now because they, had, they have no alternative and they haven't really for the last probably 10 years, if not five years, of investing in the entrepreneurial community and saying, because nobody, nobody was going to relocate to Detroit. Right, given the circumstances there, and the auto, the automotive manufacturers are never going to be what they were, right? So they had to invest in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, and I think Detroit's not only on its way back. I think Detroit is mostly back, driven by the fact that they had no choice. the The pain was so acute that they had no choice but to start from the ground up. I think sometimes things are too good for us here, especially in Columbus. Maybe not as much in Cleveland. I'm not that familiar with Cleveland as, as a market in comparison to Columbus. But I think that when I think we have to sort of manufacture our own desire and our own lack of com, uh, complacency, right, to drive forward and say, Starting companies, risking things, being innovative, being disruptive matter, even though it, things are still pretty good. And that's a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, I, I think I got blackballed by a few people in town a couple of years ago when I was on the panel. And someone asked, who's the best entrepreneur or something in, in the region? And uh, I think everyone else uh, really shook their head, yeah, 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 when they said Les Wexner. 
I'm like, well, he's an incredible entrepreneur. My gosh, what he's done, the number of jobs and companies and everything. I'm like, he's, so when it came to me, I was like, if, if there's an entrepreneur I'm going to hang my hat on right now, it's not going to be a 78-year-old guy or a 75-year-old guy. He's awesome. He's created a tremendous amount of opportunity. But if you want the top entrepreneur in town, I've got to, if I can't think of five or 10 people that are in their 20s or 30s or 40s, then we're totally at least, screwed. At least younger <laughs> than 78? Yeah, if we have one, I mean, come on, you know? So I was like, we've, we've really got to grow up. It's time for us to, you know, take the diaper off and start, you know, somebody here needs an IPO or a major exit. So we have, we have the billion dollar exit. We do. And that is a catalyst in every community that has a lot of stuff going on. We've, it takes a billion dollar exit to to really get stuff moving. I think you. So maybe we cover my meds is is going to change the game here. I don't know how they spread their wealth, but it seems like their founders are pretty darn good people, and I'll bet they had great packages, and I'll bet they created a few millionaires in that crowd that are people we all know, and that's the kind of stuff that changes the community. I think you've killed my my chances of getting less to sit in that chair at some point. So once <laughs> once his people get you know get word of this and watch this back you know because he's still on my he's still on my speaker list I just you know I just haven't gotten to say yes yet so so Wexner was a commencement speaker at a local high school a few days ago and I had a chance to visit with him and hear his speech and it was fascinating because he got up and he said how many people remember who spoke at your high school graduation and. Maybe two people in a crowd of 500 raised their hand. He said, how many people from your college? Maybe 20 people. He's like, how many people remember what they said? And like, nobody raised their hand. He's like, here's my dilemma. I'm standing up here for the next 15 minutes nobody's trying to talk to you. And, and none of you are going to remember a damn thing that I say. So that's, you know, that's how I feel right now. No one's going to remember, so I'm just being indulgent. <laughs> and you might remember that I said that no one's going to remember. Well, you know, um, Les, if you ever see this, um, it was it would, it, all love and admiration from me. Even though you're 78, I would still want you to come and, and do Startup Grind. Um, if, I would think that Les Wexner would be extremely disappointed if he viewed himself as the only and greatest entrepreneur in this, in this community. Oh, for sure. And his, if he is successful... It means that he has created an opportunity, a platform for this community to thrive and be entrepreneurial. And that's why he's been very philanthropic. He supports the arts and things because that's where entrepreneurs come out of, the creative things. So I say all that in jest, but it's, it's, what I love about him is the irony of everything about him. He's an ironic guy. He's made a tremendous impact along with a lot of people that, uh, that have made that. But it's time for this next generation to step up, we gotta we gotta run, and we can't just be carrying a baton. We actually gotta create our own race and our own path. And if we do that, they're gonna support us. The old guard's gonna support us. But you look at the Columbus Partnership. You know they're they're not spring chickens, and their challenge is figuring out who's gonna sit in their seats. And I think there's a lot of fear that they don't know. So who's stepping up? Who's in? Let's go. You know we gotta go. And it can't just be manufactured. We have to naturally figure out who the people are that are going to lead the community. And it takes entrepreneurs, 
entrepreneurs to, to be there. Most of the people in that Columbus partnership are entrepreneurs or from entrepreneur families, and that's what it takes. That's probably a good note to, uh, to end on. Please help me thank Vic for coming and chatting with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Startup Brand Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding. Keep grinding.